what's the historical background, what are the dates, what are the kings, what are the prophets dealing with in their time. And only after that do I come to say, okay, what does it mean to me? How do I apply it? And so I'm going to spend this entire evening on background. It's going to be an overkill for you. So don't walk out on me early. Hang in there. Uh, because next Sunday night, we want to go to chapter 1 on the call of Jeremiah. And uh, therefore, we'll be writing the text the whole time. But tonight, we're going to be talking about what was going on in 600 B.C. Now, if you want more details, God bless you, um, if you do. On my website, I have all of my Old Testament notes. Uh, my website is just homerheater.com, easy to remember. And I have about three or 400 pages of notes on the Old Testament prophets under that. All you have to do is click on that, and it'll call up a Word file for you. And then if you want to find Jeremiah in that to review the dates and the times and the arguments and so on, uh, it'll be there. I hope that you will. I hope that you will become good students of the Word, not just the superficial knowledge of it, but good students of the Word where you're really digging in. I had a friend of mine who was born in Korea of missionary parents, Presbyterian missionary uh, parents, and he said to me, the reason the PCUS, which was the Southern Presbyterians, were so slow to go liberal, because the Northern Presbyterians went liberal a long time ago. The reason the Southern Presbyterians were so slow to go liberal was because their elders, what we would call deacons, were all extremely well taught in Scripture. And when a preacher came from seminary who didn't have it right, they straightened him out. And I would long to have our people be able to straighten out the preacher. I'm sure he'd love that too uh, along the way. <clears throat> but we should be people who search the Word and who are serious about the study. And I know some of you are. I've met and talked with some of you who've done a Bible study fellowship and things like this. I know it's that you've really gotten in deep on this thing and you've really begun to know the Word. And so tonight, we're going to talk about what was going on in the 6th century B.C. I know that's so exciting to you to think about that. But I want us to turn to 2 Chronicles chapter 34 because I'm going to spend most of the evening building around the life of young King Josiah. And so if you turn there with me to 2 Chronicles chapter 34, there's a parallel passage in 2 Kings, but Chronicles has a little bit more than Kings does. And so I want to use that. Let me see if I can get this thing to work here. I have to turn it on. Okay. All right. The life of Josiah. Second Chronicles chapter 34 and verse 1. I'm incidentally using the New King James Version, not because I think it's the best, but because it's the right size for me to carry around. That's the, my criteria for a Bible. So if it sounds a little bit different from your NASB, uh, that's the reason. Josiah was how old when he became king? Eight. And he reigned how many years in Jerusalem? So how old was he when he died? Thirty-nine. Okay, got all these mathematicians in here. That's great. Can you imagine having a king who's eight years old? How many of you have an eight-year-old boy around here? That's <clears throat> Can you see making him king? He probably thinks he is, but... Uh, so here's this little boy, eight years of age. Now, we need a foundation date here, and the foundation date is 640 B.C. That's the date that, king, that young Josiah became king. Now, obviously, he had advisors, probably some of the priests, 
maybe some of the political leaders who ran the show while he was growing up. But this little boy made a huge difference in the history of Judah. And as we look at his life, we see so much there that we can learn from and profit by. So he was eight years old, and verse 2 says, in contrast to most of the kings of Judah and Israel, he did what was right in the sight of the Lord and walked in the ways of his father David. He did not turn aside to the right hand or to the left. You as moms and dads, that ought to be your prayer, that as your kids grow up and they're eight years old now and they're about to drive you out of your skull, pray that they will not turn to the right hand or to the left all the days of their life. What a great joy that is. And I can say from experience, uh, we have four sons all walking with the Lord, three of them in full-time Christian ministry and the other one doing ministry on the side. And to see them walking with God, and they're getting up in years now, <laughs> is just a great joy, a great joy. And that's what we should be praying for as a church, and I appreciate so much the way this church works with the teenagers to help them get through high school and then get transitioned into college. That's a tremendous blessing for a church to have that kind of operation, and we praise God for that. So this little boy is born into a people and a city and a country that is very corrupt. Idolatry is everywhere. The Canaanite religious practices have pretty well taken over, and the people are deeply involved in those. They have idols in their homes. They have high places they go to to worship, and they're worshiping Baal, the god of the Canaanites. All of these religious practices were going on when this young man was born. His great-grandfather was Manasseh, and Manasseh ruled 55 long and wicked years. Now, at the end of his life, he repented and turned back, but by then, he had already caused the harm that he had caused. So, as we look at this context now and realize that Jeremiah is speaking to this context, or he will be when his time comes, if a prophet were today ministering in Somerset, Kentucky, or in the United States of America, he would be interacting with the Iraq War, the Afghanistan War, of course, Obamacare, of course, Duck Dynasty. He would be interacting with the contemporary things that were going on around him. And if you were going to understand what that prophet was saying in the year 2014, in January, you'd want to study the history and the culture of Somerset and all around to see what was going on at that time that caused him to do that. And this is what was going on here. It was a time of great corruption morally and spiritually. It was a time of oppression when the international scene was changing all around them, as it is in our day. Uh, someone said to me this morning they're going to encourage their son to study Arabic and Chinese because those are the two things you're going to need in the days to come. These are the international things that are swirling around us today, and they had international things swirling around them in their day. And so consequently, we need this background. So eight years old, he becomes king in Jerusalem, and his entire life is devoted to doing what was right and following the Lord. Number two, it says in verse two, verse three, that in the eighth year of his reign, how old would he have been? 16, right? 
in the eighth year of his reign, while he was still young, he began to seek the God of his father, David. So when he was 16 years old, this young king begins to seek the Lord. I want to say this to you parents, you young parents especially. Teenagers don't have to rebel. Sometimes we're told that they have to. You don't have to have terrible twos, and you don't have to have rebellious teenagers. It's just not required. God doesn't say every teenager should rebel when they become a teenager. And so consequently, I want to encourage you and encourage you teenagers that are here to walk with God all of your life as a teenager. It'll save you all kinds of grief and pain. So this young king at age 16 began to seek the Lord. In the 12th year of his reign, how old was he now? 20. He began to purge Judah and Jerusalem of the high places, the wooden images, the carved images, and the molded images. And that's the next one, isn't it? He decided at the age of 20, as he looked around him, and when Jerusalem was excavated back in the 50s, they discovered all kinds of little household deities that you'd put up on your mantle and worship. As a matter of fact, throughout, throughout most of Israel's history and Judah's, if you scratch them, they bled idolatry. They were semi-pagan in their religious worship. And Josiah's determined in the year 628 that he's going to turn this thing around. And so he begins to force the people to give up their religion, to give up their common faith, their practical faith that they used every day as they worshiped Baal and worshiped Asherah and worshiped all these other deities. He said, I'm going to force them to give it up. Verse 4, they broke down the altars of the Baals in his presence, and the incense altars, which were above them, he cut down, and the wooden images, the carved images, the molded images, he broke in pieces and made dust out of them and scattered it on the graves of those who had sacrificed to them. He also burned the bones of the priest on their altars and cleansed Judah and Jerusalem. And so he did in the cities of Manasseh, went up north, Ephraim and Simeon, as far as Naphtali, and all around with axes. And when he had broken down the altars and the wooden images, had beaten the carved images into powder and cut down all the incense altars throughout the land of Israel, he returned to Jerusalem. Now, that's quite a reform movement, isn't it? He's determined to change things, as if we shut down all the adult stores, all the beer joints, all the gambling establishments, went out to Las Vegas and took an axe to the strip and cut everything to pieces. That's what he did. But I want you to notice something, and that is that this was a forced reformation. He made the people do it by force of arms. And guess what happened when he died? They went right back to where they were because their hearts had not been changed. Rather, they were forced to conform religiously. Well, about the same time, in 627, it's not in this text, we know it from Jeremiah. In 627, just about that same year, Jeremiah became a prophet. How old was he? We don't know. But he says, Lord, I'm just a young person. How can I be a prophet? So we know he was young. So I put him at 21. We could put him at 18, 17. Can you imagine? I used to think of prophets as being old gray-bearded guys, you know, 
that looked like they were on their last legs and all this. Here we have a, a boy, 21-year-old boy, or 18 even, whom God has called to be a prophet to Judah. So here we have a young guy on the throne and a young guy as prophet, both very young men, both completely dedicated to God. Here's the interesting thing. I don't know of any particular connection between Jeremiah and Josiah. <coughs> I don't know that they met on Monday mornings to pray together, to strategize. I don't know. I do know that Jeremiah says the heart is deceitfully wicked, desperately wicked, and deceitful above all things. Who can know it? And I think he might have been a little bit not that happy with the Reformation because it wasn't real. It was superficial. And as soon as Josiah died, Jeremiah's ministry becomes very difficult. And one of Josiah's sons is going to lock him up, and they're going to threaten to kill him. So Jeremiah is the prophet during these changing, tumultuous times, and Josiah is the king. But in verse 8, we have more reform, and we find the law book. This is a fascinating passage through here, and it appears in other parts of Scripture as well. In the 18th year of his reign, now how old is he? Numbers are getting higher here. 26. When he's 26 years old, when he had purged the land and the temple, notice the temple had been utterly polluted. As if you'd come into this church and you'd put up idols to Baal and idols to Asherah and idols to whomever and to fill this place with incense stands for worshiping false gods, that the church would be filled with that. That's the way the temple was. And the use of that temple had not been to worship Jehovah, the God of Israel. It was to worship all these pagan deities. I don't know about you, but I find that hard to imagine. We think of the temple as a great place where people came to worship God. And Jeremiah is going to challenge them on that in chapter 7. We're going to talk about that uh, two Sunday nights from now. But this temple was completely polluted and used for immoral, irreligious purposes. But it says in verse 8, that after he'd done all this, he sent Shaphan, the son of Azaliah, and Maaseiah, the governor of the city, and Joah, the son of Jehoahaz, the recorder, to repair the house of the Lord God. So they'd let the thing decline. The ceiling was sagging down. The walls were peeling. The seats were all crumpled up in a mess. It was a huge mess. And when they came to Hilkiah, the high priest, they delivered the money that was brought into the house of God, which the Levites who kept the doors had gathered from the land, hand of Manasseh and Ephraim, from all the remnant of Israel, from all Judah and Benjamin, and which they brought back to Jerusalem. And when they had put it into the hand of the foreman who had the oversight of the house of the Lord, and they gave it to the workmen who worked in the house of the Lord to repair and restore the house, and they got the craftsmen and the builders, they did all those things. And verse 14, it says, When they had brought out the money that was brought into the house of the Lord, Hilkiah the priest found what? The book of the law. The Torah, the five books of Moses, <clears throat> they had been so neglected that nobody even knew about them. 
And they're cleaning up this mess in the temple, sweeping out the debris and the dirt and getting rid of the idols that were in there. And lo and behold, they find a Torah scroll, a scroll rolled up of the books of Moses. <coughs> and when they brought it to the house of the Lord, Hilkiah found this book. Verse 15 says, he answered and said to Shaphan the scribe, I found the book of the law in the house of the Lord. And Hilkiah gave the book to Shaphan. Shaphan carried the book to the king, bringing the king word, saying, all that was committed to your servants, they're doing. And furthermore, in verse 19, we found this book of the law. And when the king heard the words of the law, he tore his clothes, recognizing that they hadn't been observing its contents and so on. In verse 21, he said, go inquire the Lord for me and for those who are left in Israel and Judah concerning the words of the book that is found, for great is the wrath of the Lord that is poured out on us because our fathers have not kept the words of the Lord to do according to all that is written in this book. They were in pretty sad shape, weren't they? The word of God, they didn't even recognize. It wasn't even being used. As if this church, if you go to England today, you find in most of the cities, these big cathedrals, these beautiful, wonderful cathedrals, are being taken over as mosques. And no longer is the word of God being taught in them. England's in very bad shape along those lines. This is our friend Josiah. But we have one final thing about King Josiah. And this involves the international politics of what was going on, which I'm going to go to next. But in the international politics, Babylon was rising, becoming strong. Assyria was growing weak. And Egypt was powerful enough that they were trying to arbitrate what was going to happen in the Middle East. Think of Syria and Iraq and Jerusalem and Jordan. Got a lot of the same stuff going on today. But Egypt was smart enough to know that a weak Assyria was better than a strong Babylon. Egypt knew that if Babylon became strong, that they would be in trouble with Babylon someday. So Egypt wanted to go help Assyria fight against Babylon. And so he brought his armies up along the coast and through the pass of the mountains there in the Jezreel Valley where Megiddo is located. And there's a big open valley there <coughs> where they love to fight battles. And King Josiah, at the age of 39, went out to interdict the Egyptians and to keep them from going to help the Assyrians because they hated the Assyrians. And in that battle, the Pharaoh of Egypt, Pharaoh Necho, killed Josiah. And with that, his reform movement came to a screeching halt. And everything changed from that time on. In spite of that, Assyria still lost, even though Egypt tried to help them. And Babylon becomes now the strong force, the power of the Middle East that's going to have such an impact upon Judah and Jerusalem. What a fine king who had done so much in his life to try to turn people back to the Lord. Side by side with Jeremiah, whether they were physically side by side, certainly in their thinking they were side by side, trying to turn this people who had become so corrupt and so immoral to try to turn them back to the Lord. And that's the context. 
Any questions? I'm going to give you a chance to ask any questions you want to ask me. I'm happy to say I don't know. But if you have any questions you want to ask at any time, raise your hand, because this is not just a pulpit with a sermon. This is a classroom, and I want you to learn and grow. So if you've got any questions you want to ask, I want you to feel free to do it. Anything about Josiah? How old was he when he became king? What year was it? 640 B.C.? What year was he killed? 609? Should be right up there somewhere. Did I miss one? Ah, there he is. 609. And that's going to be a critical year. Everything's going to change. It's a watershed year from that time on. Because the people who succeed Josiah, his sons, three of them, and one grandson, are all going to be bad news. All right. That's the life of Josiah. And I wanted to do that because it gives you a little bit of a sense of what was going on. But now I want to bring you into the historical backgrounds. And this is where you can doze off. I hope you won't, but you might. Yeah, history's not boring, just history teachers. And I hope I'm not boring in that. So let's see what we have here. I want to talk about the geopolitical scene. If I were talking about the geopolitical scene today in the world, give me some names. What, what big names would you give me? Iran. What else? China. What else? Israel. Russia. These are the big names. Everybody else is small potatoes. Uh, you used to talk about the big three, you know, that would control what happened. You used to talk about Great Britain as one of the big ones. Now Great Britain is nobody. Nobody. France, of course, is still there and still making an impact. So if we're talking about the geopolitical scene today, that's what we're talking about. We're asking questions like, should we have pulled the troops all out of Iraq now that Al-Qaeda has taken over Fallujah that our Marines fought for just a couple, three years ago and took it back? Should we have left troops in there? These are the debates that we're having. This is the geopolitical scene that we're talking about. And the church is in the middle of all that. How do we function in the middle of that? Uh, When we go to Israel, God willing, in March, we're going to stop in Amman, Jordan, and I'm going to look up uh, one of our former students, Dr. Imad Shahadeh, who's a Middle Eastern Palestinian, and he's the president of the Jordan Evangelical Seminary, which he founded and started. He has Iraqis coming from Iraq to study in his seminary, and they're going back to Iraq and starting churches. Now, you see, the geopolitical situation affects what he does. Matter of fact, the Orthodox Church in Oman doesn't like what he's doing, and so they went to the Muslim government and said, don't let any more students come in here. Block their visas. They're supposed to be Christians. But they didn't like these evangelical Christians. And so the government blocked visas for everybody from Egypt, wouldn't let them come into the country anymore. The geopolitical things affect all of us, all of the time. And we need to be aware of it so that we can respond to it. As a church, not just politically, but as a church, we have a responsibility to be involved in these things. So what's happening, first of all? For 300 years, the Assyrians dominated the Middle Eastern world. Think of that, three centuries. Sometimes they were up, sometimes they were down, but over that 300 years, they more or less dominated the Middle East. You remember that in 722, they carried the northern kingdom away captive. 
Ten years before that, they had defeated Damascus and carried them away captive. And the Assyrians will come and threaten Jerusalem. Remember when Hezekiah was king and Isaiah was the prophet? And the king comes and says to Hezekiah, I'll give you the horses if you can put men on them. Come out here and fight me. I can take care of you. And Hezekiah took the letter to Isaiah, and he spread it out before the Lord. And the Lord said, I'll take care of those boys. And that night, 185,000 Assyrians died, probably of a plague or something that God sent on them. So the Assyrians dominated for 300 years, from about 900 to about 600. Okay? So what's the first big player in the geopolitics of Jeremiah's day? What is it? I can't hear you. Assyria. And Assyria is going to figure in all of the 9th and 8th century prophets. Think of Isaiah. Think of Hosea. Think of um, Jonah, who went to Assyria to preach. All of these people were interacting with the Assyria of that day. And God was trying to teach them through what was going on in these geopolitics. So we have Assyrian dominance until about 600, but then the country of Assyria, the nation of Assyria, begins to decline. All nations decline eventually and pass away. They don't pass away, <clears throat> but their dominance passes away. And even the United States someday, hopefully not soon, will fall, decline, and pass away. But our hope is always in heaven, not on this earth. This world is not my home. I'm just a passing through. So the Assyrian dominance from 900 to 600. Number two, we have the rise of these Chaldeans. Now, we're going to talk about Babylonians. We're going to talk about Chaldeans. You'll find both words used in Scripture. The Chaldeans are a tribe of people who lived down along the Euphrates River and along the Tigris River and some down at the um, Arabian Gulf. And these Chaldeans spoke a little different language. They all spoke a Semitic language, but they spoke a special language called Aramaic. And those tribes would rise up down at the head of the gulf, and they'd sneak into Babylon, knock off the king, take it over. The king of Assyria would get his armies together, come south, chase him out. He'd go back to the swamps. This goes on for 100 years. Do you remember when Hezekiah was sick? And we read that Merodach Baladin had sent ambassadors to say, we brought our uh, Hallmark Get Well cards for you because we heard you'd been sick. Why do you think they were there? They were there because these Chaldeans were always in the east looking for people in the west over where Hezekiah was king to join with them in a, a coalition against Assyria. And what does, Isaiah, what does Hezekiah do? He shows them all of his money, all of his palace, the temple, the gold, the silver. And Isaiah comes along and said, what do those guys want? Oh, they just want to talk to me a little bit. What did you show them? And almost defiantly, he says, I showed them everything. And Isaiah says, well, I'll tell you what, they're going to be back one of these days and take everything from you, which they did. So... The Chaldeans are now on the rise in 625. By 625, they had become strong enough that Nabopolassar became the king of Babylon and took it over completely. And Assyria was too weak to do anything about it. 
We're beginning to see that in this country, and I'm not uh, sharpening any particular axe here, but we're beginning to reach the point of saying, we're not going to interfere anymore. Let them do whatever they want. We'll just stay within our boundaries and let it go. Assyria had reached that point. They could no longer change the course of the world events. They were that weak. So now the Chaldeans take over. And the first king is Nebuchadnezzar. He is Nebuchadnezzar's dad. And the next thing that happens is that he starts attacking Assyria. The Medes join with him. They have a combined force. They attack the ancient capital of Asher and destroy it. In 612, they take Nineveh. Nineveh falls in 612, as the prophet Nahum said it would. When this happened, the king of Assyria took his army and fled west. They head over toward the headwaters of the Euphrates River to get away and reestablish themselves and see if they can take a stand over there. And so in 609, the Babylonians chase them to Haran, which is mentioned in the book of Genesis where Abraham came. And they had a battle in Haran with the Egyptians trying to help the Assyrians. And Josiah was killed at Megiddo because of it. And in spite of the Egyptian help, the Assyrians still lost. And the Chaldeans won and defeated them. Josiah dies in 609. And in 605, the Assyrians will flee a little bit farther west to a place called Carchemish. And Babylonians will chase them there and utterly defeat them. We will never after that, hear of the Assyrians again. They're done. They're gone. Now the Chaldeans, who are also now called Babylonians, are in charge of things. Interesting that God calls Nebuchadnezzar his servant. And he's going to tell the Judeans that you need to submit to this man because he is my servant. That God was manipulating and moving on the chessboard of history to bring about his divine will. And Nabopolassar, Nebuchadnezzar are all part of that. Now, they don't know it. They think that they're doing all this with their own strength. And Nebuchadnezzar is going to suffer for that in the book of Daniel, as you know. 605 will be a critical, critical year. In 605, Josiah's son was on the throne, and Nebuchadnezzar who was by that time the general, says to him, from now on, you send your mortgage money to Babylon. We're in charge, and we're in control of things. 605 will be mentioned several times in the book of Jeremiah, so we want to watch for that. That was a, a year when everything changed. We went from a weak Assyria who no longer had any real impact on Judah to a strong Babylon who's now saying to Judah, we want you to send us $2 million a year, and we want you to pay attention to us, to submit to us, and if we catch you trying to do anything else, we're going to come and get you for it. This is the way the battle looked. Now you can see the map. The Chaldeans, and I don't know whether this shows up or not. If I do that, you can't see that. If I do that, you can see that. The Chaldeans are down here around the Persian Gulf. They're going to sneak into Babylon again and again over the hundred years' time until they finally take it over. So their first battle is to take over Babylon, which they do, and then they move up to Asher in 614 and defeat Asher, 
Then they go farther north to Nineveh, the capital of Assyria. They defeat the Ninevites, the Assyrians there. The Assyrians flee to Haran. They de defeat them in Haran in 609. Then they flee to Carchemish. And, of course, Pharaoh Necho goes to help him out at Haran. And Josiah tries to stop him. And he doesn't succeed. And, and Pharaoh Necho is going to the side of the Assyrians at Haran. And then in Carchemish in 605, and that's the end of the Assyrians. You got that? We'll review it a little bit. And if, if you're really serious about it and want to review it, pull up my notes um, on my website and review the notes that are there. I've got a whole section on the history, historical background to help you understand that. Now, this is the world of Jeremiah. He will be interacting with Egypt, Assyria at one time, later Babylon, and his own people. He will be prophesying about all of these people and all of these events at that time. Now, Judah's history. What's going on with Judah during this time? Hold on. We're going to go fast right here. Fasten your seatbelts. Josiah was killed when? 609. Where? Megiddo. What was he trying to do? Stop the Egyptians, all right? When the Egyptians come back through after the battle, they say to Judah, hey, Judah, we're in charge of this now. And so they take Jehoahaz, who had been put on the throne. He was one of Josiah's sons. They took him off and took him to Egypt in 609. Notice how important 609 will be. They put Je Jehoahaz's brother on the throne, whose name was Jehoiakim. He's the first Korean king in the Old Testament. <laughs> I said that in Korea one time, and the interpreter says, what? <laughs> and the people who all spoke English anyway laughed. They knew what I was talking about, but he, it took him a while. To, he said, I'm always slow to catch on. Jehoiakim was Josiah's son. Now, Jehoahaz is only going to last three months. Jehoiakim is going to last 11 years. And he's a wicked, wicked king. He hates Jeremiah. And he's going to give Jeremiah a very hard time. Chapter 36, which we won't get to, God says to Jeremiah, I want you to write down all the prophecies you've been making for the last 40 years. And I want it to be read at the temple. Maybe the people will listen and repent of their sins. When people heard him reading that, the leaders of the city took the scroll they said, we've got to show this to the king. They took it into King Jehoiakim, and as they read it to him, he was sitting in the wintertime by a fireplace. That sounds familiar, doesn't it? And as he sat there listening to this being read, as they would read a column of it in Hebrew, he'd slice it off with his knife, throw it into the fireplace, burnt the entire scroll. That's what he thought of Jeremiah. That's our friend Jehoiakim. So in 609, the Egyptians say they're in control. And they took Jehoahaz to Egypt after three months, and they put Jehoiakim on the throne, who lasted for 11 years. Jehoiakim is going to die probably at the hands of the people because he revolted against Babylon and in 597. And Babylon came to put down the revolt, and it looks as though the people probably murdered Jehoiakim to say to Nebuchadnezzar, we're sorry, it wasn't our fault, his fault, and we killed him for you. So here he is. He didn't die of old age, I guarantee you. He died as a fairly young man. In 605, Babylon takes over, 
and Daniel will go into captivity. Daniel has three companions and probably some others. So this would be critical for Daniel. So Daniel will now be prophesying in Babylon while Jeremiah is prophesying in Jerusalem. Daniel, of course, was in the palace area, and Jerusalem was down on the main street where everybody lived. Jehoiakim rebels in 597 and is killed. This would be a critical year. And we're going to read in chapter 29 that in that same year that uh, Jehoiakim was murdered, and they put his son on the throne, whose name was Jehoiachin. He's the first Chinese king in the Old Testament. They put his son on the throne in time to surrender the city to Nebuchadnezzar. And Nebuchadnezzar takes him to Babylon, and there he will spend the rest of his life. And he only lasts for three months. And King Nebuchadnezzar puts um, another son of Josiah on the throne by the name of Zedekiah. And during this time in 597, Ezekiel goes into captivity. So now we have Daniel in the palaces. Ezekiel is out in the rural areas, in the villages for his ministry. And it sounds as though if you read Ezekiel and you read Jeremiah, that they're really reading each other's mail. You can hear echoes uh, from one and the other in those two books as well. So these are the children of Josiah. Jehoahaz, say that with me. Jehoahaz reigned three months and was taken to Egypt. His brother, Jehoiakim, say that with me. Jehoiakim ruled for 11 wicked years, and he was murdered. His son, Jehoiachin, say that with me. Jehoiachin was put on the throne just for three months to surrender the city to Nebuchadnezzar. Nebuchadnezzar then took him into captivity and put another son on the throne whose name was Zedekiah. Say that with me, Zedekiah. We know that name. We can say that when the others are a bit more difficult to deal with. All right, how are we doing here? Zedekiah rebels eventually, even though he'd promised Nebuchadnezzar, held up his right hand and swore an oath that he would obey Nebuchadnezzar. Jeremiah's going to call him into account for that. But later, Zedekiah was a weak king. He was young. Yeah, he's in his late 20s, early 30s. But he was weak, and other people manipulated him. Sometimes he'd be helping Jeremiah, sometimes he'd be putting him in prison. He didn't know which way he was going. But in 586, he, 588, he rebelled, and Nebuchadnezzar came west and put up the siege machines and the circumvallation wall around the city, put them under siege for a year and a half. And then when the city finally fell, Zedekiah tried to escape through the south gates and head down toward the Jordan Valley, and the army overtook him took him up to Riblah, way up north, before King Nebuchadnezzar. The last sight that he saw was his boys being murdered as they chopped off their heads. Then they punched out both of his eyes and put him in fetters and took him to Babylon. If he'd listened to Jeremiah, that would not have happened. Because Jeremiah is telling him all along, you must submit to Babylon. You must not rebel against Babylon. God is using Babylon to discipline you, and you must accept your discipline and stop resisting. His whole ministry was this. This is why the people hated him, because he was unpatriotic. He was willing to say to his government, to his people, what you're doing is wrong. And that was his end, not a very pleasant one. So, 
after that, after the city was destroyed, the temple was torn down, they made Gedaliah the governor. And we won't get that far in Jeremiah. There are 52 chapters, and we've only got five Sunday nights, so we're not going to do very much in the book. All right, let's talk about the cast of characters. Josiah, young king, reigned for 31 years. Jeremiah was called in 627. Jehoahaz was put on the throne in 609 and then removed and taken to Egypt. And Jehoiakim, his brother, was put on the throne for 11 years. And then his son, Jehoiachin, ruled for three months. And then Zedekiah, another son of Josiah, ruled for 11 years. So you have three months, 11 years, three months, 11 years to help you remember those four boys. And none of them, none of them was like their father. That raises a nice question, doesn't it? Why? Is so many of these good fathers have such lousy boys? And I don't know the answer to that. It's something we, God has to help us with. Gedaliah then is the governor in 586. One final thing, then I'm going to conclude it. When I first started teaching Jeremiah probably 40, 45 years ago, it's not in chronological order. If you've read Jeremiah and you're through the Bible and so on, you say, this doesn't make much sense. Because it jumps from one king to another king and one time to another time, and it seems to be all mixed up. So I decided, in my youthful wisdom, that I was going to reorder the book in chronological order. So I tried to go through and sort out all the chapters and put them where I thought they belonged. And one day I said to myself, maybe the Holy Spirit wanted it this way. So maybe I ought to leave it alone and try to figure out what he's trying to say in it. And so consequently... This is my take on it. Uh, I've got structure for the whole book. I'm just going to do the first 29 chapters right now. Uh, but I, I see this myself rather clearly. There's some, like the guy who takes apart a watch and he has a few pieces left over when he puts it back together. I still have a few chapters that I haven't quite fit in here. But notice in verses, whoops, I don't want that. I want this. In verses 1 through 18, there's really very little said about Babylon or anything else. He's just calling on them during that whole section to repent. And next Sunday night, we're going to do chapter 2. If you'll read that chapter, I'd appreciate it. And I call it a paradigm of Jeremiah's ministry. This is what he was constantly preaching. We're going to go through that whole chapter and lay out just exactly what he was preaching and teaching. So that whole thing says repent. In chapter 18, we have the chapter on the potter. And we have a Sunday night devoted to that chapter and chapter 19. It'll be our last Sunday night in February, in February 2nd. The potter in chapter 18, and boy, we love to sing that song, Thou art the potter, I am the clay, mold me and make me have thine own way, and so on. But in the context, he's dealing with Israel. He's dealing with Israel who in Jeremiah's day had gone backslidden into their old idolatrous practices, and he's trying to challenge them to repent and to turn back to the Lord. And so they go out to the potter's gate, and the potter's making clay on the wheel, and he finds an imperfection in it, maybe a stone that caught his finger caught on. And he has to start over and make a new pot. And God says, that illustrates the fact that I can change my mind about what I'm going to do for you. That nation which will repent of its sins, even though I have said I was going to judge it, I will repent of my anger and I will forgive them of their sins and restore them. Conversely, if I said I'm going to do something good for people and they refuse to obey me and turn their backs on me, I'll change my mind about the good I was going to do, and I'll bring punishment upon them. So in chapter 18, there is still the time and opportunity to repent. 
for Israel, for Judah. What would that have looked like? I think <clears throat> that they would probably still have been under Babylonian control. But they could have kept their king. They could have kept their city. They could have kept their city, their temple. They could have kept their farmland, their shops. They could have continued life as normal, except they'd have a heavy tax put on them by the Babylonians. If they would have repented, that's what would have happened to them. But because they refused to repent, which chapter 19 talks about, in chapter 19, he takes a solid jar made out of clay pottery, takes it outside the city, and tells them that God is going to judge them, and he smashes the jar and said, this is the way God is going to smash Israel. And the word repentance does not appear even one time in chapter 19. They have lost their opportunity to repent. If they had repented by chapter 18, whenever that was, probably early in Jehoiakim's reign, if they had repented during that time, they could have stayed in the city, kept their king, kept their temple, kept their farms, their shops, the whole shooting match, and continued life almost normal. But by chapter 19, there is no more hope. Judgment will come, and it's inevitable. So I see that as in the structure of the book. Then I have to ask, okay, uh, how did the people react to that? And in chapters 20 and 21, which we won't be able to do, we have two pastors, Pasher ben Immer and Pasher ben Malachiah. They're put together side by side. You say, well, why is that? In chapter 18 and 19, the common element is the pot. The clay pot in 18, which was soft and malleable. The clay pot in 19, which was hard and unchangeable. There was probably 10 years between chapters 18 and 19, but they're put together in the book at this point. In chapter 20 and 21, we read that when Jeremiah came back from the valley after he had smashed the pot, the chief of security for the Temple Mount arrested him beat him, put him in prison, and brought him out the next day and said, now, Jerry, I don't want to hear any more of these sermons. I'm sick of these sermons. Stop doing it. And Jeremiah says, you what? Your name's not Pasher anymore. Your name is Magor Misabib. Don't you like that? Say that with me. Magor Misabib. It means scared on all sides. That's going to be your fate. You're going to be scared to death because of what's going to happen to you one of these days. But then he goes home, crawls under his bed, like a lot of preachers do on Monday morning. And he said, Lord, my name's Magor Misabib. <laughs> he said, I'm just as scared as I told Pasher he would be because he'd suffered already tremendously. But back to back to chapter 20 is chapter 21 where there's another Pasher. And so as the two pots make chapter 18 and 19 come together, the two Pashers bring chapter 21, 20 and 21 together. In chapter 21, Pasher ben Malachiah comes to Jeremiah in the middle of the siege that had started in 588, and it was beginning to look bad. And he said to Jeremiah, do you have a word from the Lord for us? Jeremiah said, yep, same one I preached all along. This city is going to fall. And so the second pasture represents the fact that all that Jeremiah said was going to happen has happened. All of his prophecies have been fulfilled. And so he puts those two chapters together to make that point. In chapters 21 through 23, we have an interesting combination here of kings, priests, and prophets. And he's saying the reason you have failed and the reason you're 
going into captivity. Because remember, when this book is now being read, they're in exile. And they're reading Jeremiah in the exile. And he wants them to understand that the reason you're in the exile is because you had bad leaders. Now, you were bad too, but you had bad leaders who didn't help you any. So we have bad kings. He goes through. He talks about Jehoahaz. He talks about Jehoiakim. He talks about Jehoiachin. And he perhaps talks about Zedekiah as well. But in the middle of that, all these bad priests, all these bad prophets, because there were false prophets going around saying, nothing's going to happen to this country. We are God's people. The cross is over us. How can anything hurt us? Or they didn't say cross. They were false prophets. And he condemns all of those false prophets. And he says, you went into captivity because these people didn't tell you the truth. At one time, Jeremiah's wearing a yoke around his neck. And he says, he, he loved to, to uh, what's the word I want here? Demonstrations. He put, he put things around his neck and do things. The yoke around his neck was saying to the king of Judah, you must wear the yoke of Babylon, submit to it. And a prophet by the name of Hananiah came up and took the yoke and smashed it and says, within two years' time, God is bringing back the people from captivity and all the temple equipment that was taken, all of that will be brought back within two years' time. That's a false prophet. I think if I'd have been he, I would have made it five or six years out. At least he, he made it just two years out. And Jeremiah says, you know what? I hope you're right. But the fact is that usually when prophets speak, they don't speak wonderful things. They don't say how wonderful you are, how God has blessed you, and how you're going to really be ha a happy person this week. They always say hard things to be accepted. And he went home, and God says, he's not right. I want you to make a yoke out of iron that he can't break and go back and give him a message. And Jeremiah goes back to him and says, you know, Hananiah, you're going to be dead within a year because you're a false prophet. And two months later, he died. Now, that's called confirmation of your ministry, if you have that kind of thing going on. These were bad leaders. In the middle of that, he talks about this wonderful branch that's coming who will be a righteous branch and will do all that's good for the people of Judah and the people of Israel. And he, of course, is the Messiah who's promised to come someday and rule over the Jewish people. Then in 24 through 29, and I wish I had opportunity to get into some of these chapters with you because they're so wonderful. They're really saying that your being in exile is God's will. That's God's will. I can imagine most people saying, how can that be God's will? I'm torn up from my country. I'm torn up from my family. I'm torn up from my job. I'm torn up from everything. And I put into a country where I can't speak their language and I don't like their food. And I, Why could you call that God's will? God says that it is. Chapter 24, we have the good figs and the bad figs. Two pots of figs. One's rotten. One's fresh and succulent and good. And if you were to say, okay, who are the good figs and who are the bad figs? The ones in Jerusalem or the ones in Babylon? The people of that day would have said what? The ones in Jerusalem, of course. The poor bad people, God bless them, they have to go to exile. Oh, no, said Jeremiah. The good figs represent the people in exile. The bad figs represent the people in Jerusalem. God's will is that you be in the exile. That's a hard thing to accept. It was hard for them to accept. 
it's hard for us to accept when terrible things happen in our lives. But I need to understand that when God is at work in my life, I can trust him. And I can find peace and satisfaction in the midst of a difficult time. I don't know about you, but I find that hard. Uh, my wife's in the hospital a couple weeks ago for 12 days. I call it 12 days of Christmas. And it was, you know, it's difficult. But we have to say, okay, Lord, here I am. Show me what you want me to learn. I'm willing to learn. And sometimes you come out saying, I didn't learn anything, <laughs> except I didn't like it. But I need to recognize God's will, and I'm going to let it go with that. You can see chapter 29 in particular is a marvelous chapter. He says to them, I want you to put down roots. I want you to build houses. I want you to have children. I want you to have your kids get married. You're going to be there. I got good news and bad news. The good news is, after 70 years, you're going to return to Jerusalem. The bad news is, if you're 50 years old, <laughs> guess what? You're not coming back. But he's saying to them, I put you in the exile. Chapter 29, he writes to those, and he says, the letter went to those whom I have put in exile. Not Nebuchadnezzar, but God. And God is working in my life, and sometimes he puts me through some ringers to help me learn to trust him and to cling to him in the middle of adversity and difficulty. Okay, one quick review. Your teacher, you got to review, right? Josiah began to reign when he was how old? Eight. He was killed at Megiddo when he was 39. His son was put on the throne, the first one whose name was Jehoahaz. Say it with me. Jehoahaz. Pharaoh Necho came back down from fighting with the Assyrians, and he removed Jehoahaz and took him to Egypt and put his brother on the throne, and his name was Jehoiakim, the first Korean king. And Jehoiakim ruled 11 years, and then he rebelled, and the people murdered him probably, and they put his young son Jehoiachin on the throne in time to surrender the city to Babylon. Jehoiachin ruled how long? Three months. And Nebuchadnezzar came back with his army and forced him to submit, and he said, okay, fool me once. That's your fault. Fool me twice. It's my fault. I'll let you get away with it this time, but don't you ever, ever do this again. And it took Jehoiachin into captivity and put another son of Josiah on the throne whose name was Zedekiah, and he rules how many years? Eleven years. And then Zedekiah, contrary to his oath that he made before God to submit to Babylon, he rebelled, and he was killed. Uh, his, eyes, his eyes were poked out, rather, and he was taken into captivity, and the city fell. The temple was destroyed. The city was destroyed. Terrible, terrible, terrible time. Okay, next Sunday night, we want to do chapter 2. It's a paradigm of Jeremiah's ministry. We're just going to go through it verse by verse and see what he was saying back in the years during which he was ministering. I hope you'll uh, grow through this, learn through this. Feel free to call me at home if you want to um, between the hours of 10 a.m. and 8 p.m. Uh, and I'll be happy to chat with you. And I, I hope that this will be a profitable time for you. Shall we pray together? Thank you, Lord, for your love. How wonderful it is that you love us. We thank you that you're in charge of history. You're in charge right today. 